So welcome to Storytelling Breakdown. This is a bit of an offshoot of something that we'll be doing on the podcast probably for a while here, just given to what extent the material is so significant for so many of us on the show. Could you call it a spinoff? Maybe we're going to keep it under the Storytelling Breakdown banner. We've got yeah, other really projects that might then. spin off, but yeah. So as you can hear, uh, it's uh, Stephen and me uh, on the mics right now. They say podcasts are a recording of a conversation you are going to have anyway, and we talk a lot about D&D. Way too much, maybe. <laughs> yeah, there was a time where we met once a week to just talk about running tabletop campaigns. It wasn't D&D at the time, mm-hmm. but so, you know, yeah. this makes sense. And that's history that we've covered, and yeah, we oh, can yeah. kind of mention some of that kind of in brief here oh, as yeah. we get going. When we first started Storytelling Breakdown, I think within like the first 10 of the blogs, you wrote a very good one about how you started planning to dm fifth edition and getting the books and going through that whole process oh yeah to build or not to build i think was one of them mm-hmm. and then i did like a top 10 aspects of a good dm and a top 10 aspects of a good player mm-hmm. which i polled people for like hey if you were to describe to me a good player or a good dm give me some keywords or whatever and we've throughout the podcast as well leaned into this territory a little bit but i don't think we've given dungeons and dragons any exclusive time maybe with the exception of like one of the spotlights because Mm -hmm. we've had caleb and i talked about rpgs when we did our community update for the second season or before the second season then we came back to that rpg conversation with you to talk about the star wars fake campaign we were running for road producers of star wars story which is still one of my favorite episodes yeah it was fun it was a lot of fun And then I did a spotlight talking about one of the Critical Role Battle Royales because that was kind of a tipping point for me in terms of I can feel comfortable running D&D now. Like That was when I realized, oh, I understand how this works. I'm watching how this really, as you're first getting into it, complicated combat system works. And then once you see it enough and internalize it enough, it's really pretty straightforward. It can just seem like a lot if the plan is you're the one running it, if you're the DM. Yeah. Being a DM can be very intimidating, particularly when you're looking at a source book that is... 200 plus pages long for just the dm plus the 285 page player's handbook plus the plus the plus the it's very akin to directing a show a play or or a stage show of some kind because you've got so many moving pieces yeah absolutely and when you're just coming into it i think eventually though it does become to feel very intuitive how the rules do actually work so here we are yeah to to maybe discuss a little bit more about actual D&D. So let's explain what this is. We're looking into doing what's called a campaign diary, a concept I first uh, became familiar with thanks to Matthew Colville. I don't think I've talked about him nearly as much on this podcast as I would like to, but he is very big in the world of Dungeons and Dragons and tabletop gaming and gaming in general. And just a lot of the things I've watched so many of his YouTube videos uh, where he talks about storytelling and different aspects. Well, he's got a whole series called Running the Game, Mm -hmm. which is absolutely Mm -hmm. amazing and was a godsend for starting to figure out okay do i feel confident enough to do this and then it always felt wonderful to think to myself well there's something that i'm considering doing is it maybe a good idea and then hearing matthew colville talk about a concept that hey this would be really good or this would be something good to see at your table and it's like already doing that that really feels like an amazing step in the right direction it's a shot in the arm okay cool We're, we're moving in the right direction yeah oh for sure and what we want to do here because you and i are now both currently running campaigns mm-hmm. uh, with several of our friends. I'm playing in your Curse of Strahd campaign. And I'm playing in your campaign. Yes. It has a name. Right now, I've been... 
since the beginning, I've just been calling it Adventures Assemble because that was the first name the group chat had when yeah, I first started rallying people together. So we're going to have a couple of conversations talking about organizing our games, session zeros, yeah, session, zero. session one. I would like to also talk about the plot of how the first session played out just because there was simultaneously a lot that happened and a lot that didn't happen given just how far we got in that first night. So we should be able to cover all of that just fine. And then we will do the same thing. I, I just, of course, name dropped one of the greatest campaign modules in the history of D&D as well as one of the greatest villains. We will be getting to yeah. your Curse of Strahd we'll campaign in a future Strahd. episode. Oh, oh my for word, sure. yeah. And we'll have to rope Caleb in, too, because he's running He's running a game, a and campaign. Larissa is playing in mine. Yeah. And we have so many connections with our team in D&D right it's now, just, so I'm so glad we're having this it, conversation. It's just too much for us to do in one episode of the regular season, so we decided to make a offshoot season. It's okay. Yeah. And these campaign diary episodes will come out interspersed with the as much as it can be regularly scheduled programming that you hear at the end of each month. Usually yeah. last Friday of each month is when we drop each new episode yep. of Storytelling Breakdown. Yeah. Let's dive right into things and I will give kind of a rundown on what led me into running the game and getting the players to the table and just getting to a starting point and then we'll kind of talk about how things build up from there. I do have to give you credit and thank you for writing the blog posts that you did because they started the wheels turning. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and as I was looking for maybe another creative outlet or realizing, okay, we were on a hiatus, still are on a hiatus yeah, from the Fate Core are. games. And well, I how many times did I complain to you about the combat in Fate Core, in particular the combat? Yeah. And kept going, man, it just, it works so much better in, in Dungeons and Dragons with reserve the fact that the force is not in Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> but, you know, there were lots of times where I said, man, this is how it would work in D&D, mm -hmm. but it doesn't really translate. Well, it's just easier to balance because there's such a massive precedent of here's how you create this thing within this system. Yeah. And I'm sure to a degree, Fate has some of that. I have some of the books. I have Even I have not gone fully down the Fate Core rabbit hole. Right. But I think, yes, we were maybe asking it to do things that we didn't know how to implement <laughs> as we well, were going I think, forward. I think that's part of it. I think that is. <laughs> and as we were building yeah. these villains that were supposed to scale... With our players, we ran into a lot of troubles with either the villains being terrifyingly overpowered or underwhelming. And to we, I think we got it sorted out eventually, but you know, and we talked about that. But that was one of the things that I always complained about when we were running Fate was that, man, this combat just doesn't seem to mm -hmm. click. Yeah. And then I wrote those blog posts because I've been doing D&D &D for years, and I tried my hand at DMing a couple of times and varying degrees of success. And then I wrote those blog posts. So we got yeah. the ideas firmly fixed in your frontal lobe there. Yes, you did. And I had been running the Fate campaigns with you. I had started out running the Suicide Squad sessions. Mm -hmm. Then we moved to the Star Wars sessions. We took a pause that actually started when we wanted to start the podcast because it was fall of 2020 and I was looking at things and just like, okay, Storytelling Breakdown is not going to get off the ground if I don't have X amount of additional time to dedicate to it. And that coincided with the shift. And then eventually it's like, okay, I do want to build back into RPGs here. And maybe it's time to get back to something I've played, but not something I've run. Because I had played D&D &D before. I had only ever played 4th Edition, because that was what Lucas Gerke was running at the time. And additions and different elements of the game is its own conversation you know, and a rabbit hole might, I don't really want to go down, at least right now. I have that conversation at some point. Oh, uh, yeah. I started in 4th Edition. Yeah. I, I really quite enjoyed my time in 4th Edition. And yeah. I like 5th Edition better. Boom. <laughs> There yeah. it is. 
And I think, well, and really, and this is where I'm in this camp, if you see like conversations play out online and just different conversations about the different ed- editions. If you are enjoying what the game is doing at the table and you and your friends and your your party, if you're the DM, if everyone at that table is enjoying the game, then you're playing the right system and it's working for you and that's great. Absolutely. I have spoken about just to what extent, like I loved having Lucas as a DM. He's amazing at it. It was a blast to play that campaign with Caleb and Autumn and Eddie. And then I went a few years without really touching D&D until kind of all at once you're starting the Strahd campaign, having conversations with Casey about it. And because everyone, a lot of the folks that we did bring in to the fake core side of things also avid D&D players. Yeah. And so I started to figure out, okay, do I know how to run this thing? And so once again, it's familiarizing yourself with those first three books, understanding the basics, understanding enough about character creation and how they're built to be able to walk players through it yeah that's a big one because i wanted to start off this first group at least while i'm still trying to find my feet as a dm and the way i kind of structured it the way i did and also who i included and who i didn't going into it i was thinking to myself i don't want to have another experienced dm in the room (laughs) (laughs) because i thought to myself i am going to be falling on my face repeatedly especially in these early sessions let's get some experienced players Let's also get some rookie players mm-hmm. and see where this goes. And as I was, and we'll get more into the makeup of the party uh, in a few minutes, I had looked into, I ended, ended up double purchasing. I invested in the source books online and then also realized I got to get physical copies. It's just so much easier to page through and go through and have a better understanding of yeah. the, the physical media helps so much. And then I started digging into D&D homebrew that I could find free online. So much stuff. There's so much. It's insane. And some of it is incredible. Yeah. And some of it I look at and I go, ooh. <laughs> All right, buddy. More power to you. I don't want it. You keep it. <laughs> so, well, but it's cool. Yeah. It's such a cool community, I guess, to, to, to yeah. look into. And and I have to shout out to one particular creator who I have never met, never had a single even online interaction with. Uh, but I might send this episode to because this episode's going to have the words Welcome to Murktown in it, which is what I ultimately called my first session. And it, it, it was the name of the, the city where the campaign started for the players. And it comes from a homebrew creator, DM Dave, I believe, mm-hmm. uh, is what he goes by online. And he has so much content that's out there. He is on Patreon, and I would uh, recommend supporting him to an extent, especially if you start to, as I did, take advantage of a lot of his content. He has a book for the the setting and the world that it's in. And I started to look and learn more about, okay, this is the continent. This is the culture. These are some of the major players. And started to see all these different modules coming together. And I realized, you know, this could be an opportunity to kind of build my own campaign and have the players going from this scenario in this city, this scenario in this location, and kind of bounce around a little bit, try to make that feel as as organic as I could, but also do what I felt like Lucas did an amazing job of, and that was centering the story of the campaign on the players and on Mm -hmm. their characters. And I have a rough idea of big story beats and different elements that I want to hit uh, where the campaign could go and different ideas and NPCs and people I want to include but I also wanted to make sure, okay, as each player comes to the table with their character concept, how does that change the world? How are they connected to the world? Those connections started to form up, and I guess now would be a good time to, to kind of talk about finding or finding the players and the, and the character creation oh, yeah. process. Because, I mean, if your 
you know, running your own campaign as opposed to like what I'm doing, the characters are going to form more of the story than, say, running a module like Curse of Strat, where the story is kind of to a degree set in stone and you guys are kind of just working your way through it, which we'll get into in a different episode. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so I think now is a good time to bring up your characters, your players, because that's going to form as we go forward in these episodes what happens in your campaign. All right. Let's start with the characters whose creation I had maybe a little more to do with. So we'll start with the newer players. Actually, let's start with the player our our audience would be most familiar with at this point, uh, which would be Larissa. Yeah. And she is playing... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, because Larissa is a a small in stature person, not in personality. She's got a big personality and we love her dearly, but she's not a big person and she's playing a barbarian and she's playing this massive barbarian and it's just such a (laughs) wonderful dichotomy that i can't help but laugh yeah so she is playing an azamar barbarian named gorg who looks and sounds like craig ferguson yeah who sounds like craig ferguson and looks like his character from how to train your dragon to an extent he has a peg leg a big helmet with horns on it that are downward facing he looks viking-esque uh, he's got pretty high charisma and very low intelligence, as yeah. is sometimes the case with your barbarians. barbarians, and comes into battle wielding a great axe and a great club and is not the frontline fighter you run want to run into if you're one of the bad guys. And It's not the frontline fighter you want to run into if you're part of the party. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I got thrown out of a window by that character, specifically. No, no. I got thrown out of the window by somebody else. I yeah. landed on that character. Yeah. Beside the point. Oh, my goodness. And I, I'm going to leave that description there because, again, as we go through these, I don't want to spoil future episodes. So that, that's kind of everything you need to know about Gorg to start Gorg. things off. Azamar, barbarian, blonde hair, helmet, really large axe, sounds like Craig Ferguson to an extent. And, okay, we've Is got one souls? of our martial classes. A little left ones. What's with that? <laughs> All right, let's stick with Marshall and uh, go to the character my wife was playing because I wanted her to have her first opportunity to to play and be a part of a D&D campaign. And so the concept we landed on because she wanted to be a rabbit was having her Death play bunny. a rabbit folk rogue <laughs> named Delilah whose speed is absurd. Uh-huh. She has dark brown fur, wears a lot of black and purple armed with daggers and a rapier. A and golden carrot dagger specifically that you built. Those would come later. Uh, she's <laughs> yeah, right. also armed session with another one. magic weapon that will come up in our conversation because she got it in session one. And this, and it's maybe one of the best examples of me not knowing what I was doing yet as a DM. Anyway, so enormous barbarian, tiny bunny. They also came into the story already knowing each other. But now, yeah, and I'll yeah. kind of get more into the how the narrative is built once we have our all of our players. Third player at the table, a mutual friend of ours, Nicole. Yep, playing an elven fighter named Siv. Dark hair, kind of copper meets olive skin tone. Uh, obviously. Well over 100 years old, given elven lifespans. Yes, Wood Elf. Wood Elf. Usually armed with a long sword, though she also of late has been favoring a short sword and scimitar lineup to be able to get the two-weapon fighting thing going. Nicole and I built her with Nicole basically saying, I kind of wanted to be like Aragorn, and I said, well, for the irony of Aragorn being a ranger with what you want to do with your character, we need to go with fighter. (laughs) I mean, the the Lord of the Rings characters don't really fit classes very well. Gandalf's actually a paladin. (laughs) I can go into that some other time, but yeah, that's my hot take there. 
Gandalf's actually a paladin. Oh my goodness. And so all three of them built their characters with me, partially using D&D Beyond. We've since gone completely freehand, mainly because there's been enough homebrew that it just doesn't work anymore to use yeah, D&D Beyond. Yeah, I love D&D Beyond. It's a great resource. I'm not a fan of the fact that I have to buy rebuy books if I want to have my yeah. physical copies and my digital copies. And that's the downside is that you can get like up to six characters with just your email. Like, you don't have to pay for anything. But those characters are going to have limitations. They have a yeah. lot of limitations. There's a lot more you can do with that physical yeah. physical character sheet in your hand, mm-hmm. which honestly, I do that now because you're the one who is like, but I can do this. And you're holding your character sheet in front of me. And I'm going, I can't do that because I don't want to pay for it. <laughs> well, it's one of the most liberating aspects of the game is learning how to build them freehand. It really is. I think is. so. I, and, I completely agree now. And I think once I had run maybe five or six sessions, I committed to finally figuring that out. And that also happened because I was realizing, oh, there's some... Not really... There's there's just been some characters, they haven't fit... I wouldn't call them... Well, I guess they are still NPCs. I wouldn't call them DMPCs because my plan was I'm going to run them for a session and they'll pop up later. That's an NPC. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. They're... they're party adjacent but they are not a member of the party npc with a stat block yeah and so building some of those characters i realized if i do enough of this i need to know how to do this freehand Mm -hmm. meanwhile speaking of creating it freehand or however you want to do it i had two other players the experienced players who i talked about the concepts they told me what they wanted to do uh once we assessed yep that would fit into the world fit in the story go ahead and do it we had another friend uh, of ours named katie come in with a tiefling sorcerer named noreen and we had our friend Megan come in with a half-elf artificer named Ada. And Katie and I worked more on Noreen's backstory. I'm going to stop there because that will matter as we get deeper and deeper into the campaign. Cool. Likewise, Megan gave me plenty of opportunities to tie Ada into the world and kind of figure out, okay, she and it was logical to then have she and Siv grew up in the same location. Mm-hmm. They, and they're longtime friends now traveling together and have come into the party in this way. And then Gorgon Delilah and Ada and Siv find Noreen. They travel together for a few weeks, and then eventually they end up in a small port city called Murktown. For those of you in the back of your minds going, Artificer, what he said is actually the correct pronunciation, and it drives me nuts. (laughs) But Artificer is actually correct. I'm sorry, dear listener. He's right. Just go with it. And I think blame who's it jacob from the youtube channel uh xp to level three oh, yeah. i've watched enough of his stuff and i think he's the one who first pointed out to me artificer is the correct way to pronounce it and i've been doing that ever since i still like artificer better but that's I beside know. the point oh gosh well and, and then this is okay so we've referenced matthew colville we've uh-huh. referenced critical role we've referenced xp to level three i've also been watching the dungeon dudes there's so much good D content out there as you're oh, trying man. to find it's your because because i did not know who a new critical role yeah. but i did not know any of those other three or had not run a single fifth edition session a year ago and we're now to the point that I've almost run 30 sessions and it has been a blast. So I think, again, we have a rough sense of some of these character backgrounds and and what they uh, bring to the table. Uh, you do have, and this is, as I thought about it, I realized, you know, you've got a, a very positive magical aura with Gorg as the Azamar, maybe countering the very negative magical aura that comes with Nareen the Tiefling and then Along with them, we've got two other, we've got two of Elven Descent and a bunny. Boom, we have our party. So now let's get into what this first session was even going to look like. I took a module from 
DM Dave called Shrine of the Emperor of Bones. It's a dungeon. Yep. It has plot hooks. It yep. does not tell you where it is. It could be anywhere in any setting. You can Which plunk this level one great. module anywhere in your world. Yeah. Also, I did have everybody starting at level one, and I don't know if I'm ever going to do that again. More level on that to come. One is hard. <laughs> level one is honestly the most challenging part of D and D, because by the time you reach level five, yeah, as a party, you're pretty pretty capable of handling a lot of really hard stuff. But when everybody has like collectively fifteen hit points, <laughs> maybe yeah, it's going to be a problem. It's it's just difficult. Level yeah. one sucks. Mm-hmm. But and, beside the point, yeah, starting and, at level one's kind of cool. Yeah, and last summer, uh, me as the new DM for fifth edition didn't really understand why that was going to be a problem, and uh-huh. so we've got Shrine of the Emperor of Bones. I'm putting it in Murktown because there's a future module that is set in Murktown called Spider's Ew that I was intending to pull from, and now you've gotten the experience of playing through that, and we'll get to that again more in a future session. Yeah, for those of you wondering where my character is, he doesn't exist yet. Well, he does now, but not He's not in Murktown in yet. In Murktown yet. No. He's somewhere, somewhere being threatened with an axe. <laughs> oh my goodness. No, I and I look forward to Aloman's introduction. We have, at this point... It is a small twist on the phrase you hear commonly of, you meet in a tavern. If you've got all these adventures coming from different locations, that's where you start. I did start the adventure in a tavern, but with the party already having some established dynamics under their belt. Look, as much as uh, people dog on, so you meet in the tavern, taverns are great places to meet people, my guy. <laughs> um, and everybody kind of universally gets the concept of how a tavern slash a bar works. So it takes away some of the awkwardness that often accompanies a brand new party by saying, yeah, you all meet in a bar. Oh, okay, cool. I know the social context of a bar. So if you're one of those people out there who's like, man, it's so cliche, get over yourself. It's a great it's a great way to introduce a bunch of characters in a social context that they understand. Yeah, absolutely. And still then have a little bit of, especially for new players... <laughs> You're going to be doing theater of the mind and interactions in character for the first time. I wanted to make that as smooth as I possibly could. So I did actually go through fully intending to not have combat break out in the tavern, but I did have a, a printed out floor plan of the loaded buckler that we used for that first session. And that was the name of the tavern. I then also, for easy reference, printed out little miniatures of every person in that tavern as the party gets there. So we had bartender, barmaid, couple of uh, figures, an older man, a younger woman uh, sitting at opposite ends of the bar, uh, a group of orcs gambling at a table in the corner, a band at the other end of the room uh, playing some songs, uh, some other strangers, a dwarf, a man, a gnome, a couple of strange bug-like companions along with the gnome that the party opted not to, to talk to. Like, a third of the people that I put in the tavern no one in the party spoke to <laughs> during the totally first session. Fine. Yeah, but it was then still great to have, okay, what are the interactions that we're going to have to kind of introduce these new players to this game? I uh, had a full tavern menu printed out so they could order as their characters, spend money written down on their character sheet. Oh, yeah. And have a meal before they go off. We began uh, right around sundown in the, in the world. And Welcome to Murktown started off with our barbarian Gorg going over in the corner and gambling with the orcs because part of his backstory is one, he knows orcs and two, he also has a little bit of a gambling habit. Also, he doesn't remember anything that happened more than a year ago. 
Gorg has some memory loss and he's still trying to put things together. Huh. So there's a few things that Gorg does know about his life. He knows he enjoys gambling with orcs, so he immediately makes a beeline for that corner. You know, Gorg just started making a lot more sense. <laughs> <laughs> and I didn't know that. <laughs> I'm, I just re- I realized that as I was saying that. This is the first time Steven's, ser- Steven's heard this. Yeah, Gorg has no idea where he was at any time before a year ago. He doesn't know anything about any of it way to go big man yep way to go so he goes into the corner gambles with the orcs ends up winning some gauntlets from the the orcs which ended up being a powerful magic item and me being not an experienced dm uh ended up being a magic item that would allow gorg to cast flame blade which is a spell that requires concentration which is not going to work very well if you're a barbarian that rages yeah i can't can't concentrate on spells if you're raging nope so uh i think if you're raging i think gorg has used that item to its full utility approximately once 15 sessions in then <laughs> meanwhile <laughs> uh the others are, are mainly at this point ordering their food kind of keeping to themselves so we have gorg branching out from the party a little bit and then noreen our tiefling sorcerer went up to the bar had, had some interaction with the barkeep and then ends up hearing the tail end of a conversation uh between the barkeep a uh, a curly-haired man named malins who's Based on, just because I felt I could do the voice, uh, T.J. Miller, or he's the bartender weasel in the Deadpool films, <laughs> uh, also of Silicon Valley fame. And yep. We won't go any further down the T.J. Miller rabbit hole, but he was my <laughs> inspiration for the barkeep. Okay. Having a conversation with this older wizard named uh, Thestro, uh, who I decided to, hey, l- let's make this guy feel familiar to the party out of the gate, visually, Michael Gambone. Not right. in the Dumbledore role, but okay, this is okay. who you can picture. You're used to him playing yeah. an old wizard. Old wizard. So Noreen does end up talking to him and discovers he's interested in getting this ritual book that is believed to belong to, as legend has it, the Emperor of Bones, who has a shrine beneath the old keep on the west end of the city. So we have our first plot hook. <laughs> Go to the shrine, retrieve the ritual book for Thestro. He will pay handsomely for it. That has been offered. Party doesn't take the opportunity. (laughs) They uh, get the keys to their rooms. Uh, They head upstairs. Uh, They aren't really particularly interested in investigating the shrine. They're going to wait till morning. Uh, There's no real urgency. Sounds about right. Yep. Go upstairs, get their rooms. As they're upstairs, they do look across the town from the second floor of the loaded buckler, and they can see some light in the distance. They can hear maybe a bit of a commotion. Uh, The perception check (laughs) takes the form of Delilah's got very good and very large ears being rabbit folk. Gorg holding her out the window and just going, hear anything? <laughs> very uh, Rafiki and Simba-esque. Uh, at which point Delilah reports, yeah, there's definitely some shouting voices and commotion going on in the west side of the city. We should probably investigate, at which point they realize that there have been some children that have disappeared into the shrine and have not come out yet. And you have everybody from the town's guards to uh, the concerned parents to the local magistrates all waiting to see who can do something about this. And our five adventurers have shown up and are ready to descend into the shrine. There we go. Yes. So Missing kids. That's how you get them every time. Yeah, I was going to say, first plot hook didn't do anything. Second plot hook, okay, we're in. Which That's how you determine what kind of party you have. Mm-hmm. They didn't take the plot hook where they're going to make a bunch of money. So we have a lawful good party? <laughs> Question We have mark? a chaotic good party. Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's Delilah's alignment, Siv's and Gorg's, if I'm recalling correctly. And I think Noreen and Ada are neutral variations <laughs> uh, in a couple different directions there. So they've arrived on the west side of the city. There's a temple nearby. There's also some temple acolytes uh, who are concerned, uh, who also are well aware of the fact that there's an evil presence beneath the shrine, and you just don't go in there. 
In fact, that should have been something the kids should have known. So why they even went into the shrine in the first place is a mystery. This is where maybe we can pause a little bit and I can describe where new DM me was at at this point. Okay, we've gone through the encounter at the Loaded Buckler. The hooks have eventually played out, even if it took a second one uh, on top of the interactions in the tavern. Two out of ten of the possible conversational routes that could have happened in the tavern uh, were triggered. Eight were left untapped, although they did include some interactions with characters who have since been introduced in the campaign, so more on that later. And at this point, we have, okay, our fighter and artificer ready to charge in and see what they can do. Our sorcerer who's aware of the, and I, and I believe Noreen did share with the rest of the party. Hey, I have this conversation with this guy. If we're heading here, we should also be on the lookout for this ritual book. So everyone knows what, what the stakes are. And they, after a brief interaction with some of those NPCs outside of the keep are ready to head into the old ruin and down into the shrine below. This is actually a case of given to what extent we've played this out I've actually sent you Shrine of the Emperor of Bones. Yes. Any thoughts or observations or things you want me to touch on as we start to get into this it first run down really the rabbit difficult hole? difficult for a level one party <laughs> of less than ten people. Okay. There's just, there's a lot of things in that that could deal some dam- enough damage to kill a player. Mm-hmm. There was a fair number of things where I'm like, ooh, ooh. <laughs> um, in particular, the Emperor himself was actually pretty tough. Yeah. And for like, you know, a full party, okay, yeah. As long as they make it through the rest of the dungeon without running into any major problems. Which we're about to get to. Right. Um, <laughs> they should be fine. There was a puzzle in it, isn't there? Uh yes. Well, it's it's there's got a little bit of everything. Like, like, everything. Again, there's shout puzzle, out to DM Dave. A, yeah. A couple of nice traps. There's some other mm-hmm. creatures lurking about. And so like just at the glance over I've given it, I was like, man, a level one party would have some trouble with this. It's like almost like Death House. Death House can very quickly kill a party of level one people, yeah. players. I think that well, if, if you don't get to, really good, yeah. really good rolls. Though to contrast, for those familiar with uh, Death House from Curse of Strahd, the shrine has like eight chambers. <laughs> it yeah, is Death a House much is smaller actually dungeon. designed to take you all the way through level three. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Um, so you go from level one to level three. By the time you finish Death House, you should be at level three, or you're dead. <laughs> Fair. Those are the two options. Indeed. And they go into the first chamber, descend down a flight of stairs. And once you've scanned through the darkness, if you're a player that has dark vision, you can get a sense of a shape that's lumbering towards you, recognize some features if you're familiar with creatures of the world of D&D, and you see a beak and a very large oval face and some fur and feathers and these large lumbering hands with claws, and you're looking at an owlbear at first glance. And as it gets closer, you realize... It's a zombie owl bear. Double so wolf. there's no animal handling check in this scenario. We're nah. heading into combat. Everybody roll initiative. Where's so the we cleric have when you need one? Yeah. Oh, wait. You don't got one. Not yet. No, no clerics. So, yeah, we at this point have, and I did actually, this worked out well. Our casters are Noreen and Ada, played by the experienced players, and I did warn both of them, you might want to have some healing stuff in your kit. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because you don't you don't have the bard yet. Who I've got some healing stuff, but and I show up, but mm-hmm. there yeah. really isn't a there isn't a designated healer for that party. No, and there definitely wasn't during this session. Yeah. So everybody rolls initiative. The owl bear is moving towards them out of the shadows. Uh, first up in the initiative order is Siv. She's towards the back of the group in the walking order, but given where the initiative landed, she charges past everybody, clears the rest of the stairs, 
comes out longsword at the ready, and her first roll in the first combat of the first session of the campaign was a natural 20. <laughs> so the fighter hits this thing hard right out of the gate. And from there, our casters are delving into their spell books. We've got Delilah throwing daggers. We've got Gorg going at it and attempting to hit it with, with his massive weapons. And the killing blow was actually dealt by Delilah as she got it behind it so it would be flanked and she'd be able to do a sneak attack sneak on it. Sneak attack. And yeah. bread and butter right there. With the <laughs> how you want to do this moment ended up being the rest of the party sees Delilah go around. Given the size disparity, this owl bear, this zombie owl bear is a large creature. Delilah is a small creature. She's like three feet tall and pl- plus ears. So she vanishes behind the owl bear. The owlbear rears up on its back legs and then just drops, head severed from its body. Delilah rolls off of the top of it and lands and is now holding a new weapon. She found him embedded in the hide of that owlbear. And it was a weapon called the Swift Rapier. Swift. Yes. And uh, new DM me didn't realize if a magic weapon has a few characteristics, maybe don't give it to a level one character. (sighs) It's labeled... As legendary. Oh, no. Because it's a plus two weapon. Oh, good and, grief. And when you take an attack with the Swift Rapier, you can also then take a second attack. So that absurdly <laughs> powerful weapon ends up in the hands of our party rogue within the first two hours of the campaign. That's a, that's a hefty, hefty little bugger. And it's a rapier, so it's a D8 yep. of slashing damage, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly. Two attacks... Rogues don't get an extra attack, by the no. way, like so as their class. That ended up accounting for that, yeah. Woof. All Inadvertently. Right. I had no idea what kind of power I had just handed to Delilah That's for insane. the future. Yeah. That's a lot of power, but, you know, okay. So the party has dispatched the zombie owlbear, and they are going to go deeper into the shrine. As they're going through, I think it actually did end up being Delilah, uh, got hit with a magic missile spell that was a part of a, a trap, trap that was triggered. Uh, there was also a body of a fallen tiefling in the hallway. There was a, an explorer who had attempted to investigate the shrine and uh, did not survive the encounter, lying, lying dead in, in the second chamber of this long hallway. And, at least in my mind, probably the previous owner of the rapier, if we had to guess. Probably. And so the party investigates. They decide, okay, dead body, let's go down a different hallway. And so instead of going down straight, they take a different corridor that goes to the left. In a chamber they eventually end up in as they take a left, then a right, then another left. They're in a chamber further down the way. And they find that chamber completely littered and covered with spiderwebs. From floor to ceiling, wall to wall, the room is covered in them. And that's when you turn around and go the other way. They would have, except two of the children they were looking for are trapped in the webs. So the party goes up and is attempting to get them free. Noreen making a very good decision right out of the gate. He's using Mage Hand to clear the webbing because the Mage Hand is not going to get stuck. Ah, and he's going through, pulling the kids free and doing what you can to clear the space. And then this is where new DM me made his first spectacular miscalculation. Or, if you're keeping track, another spectacular miscalculation that, for that this first session. That might, might be a spectacular yeah. miscalculation. As well as the the Gauntlets of Flame for a, oh, a yeah. party member who rages. So That's also true. This is going to be the third. And <laughs> I knew, okay, I'm running Shrine of the Emperor of Bones, and I'm setting it in Murktown, which is based out of Spider's U and has its own 
monstrous encounters and creatures. Venom crawlers. Yes, indeed. And they come in various sizes. The the Venom Queen in the Brood is a massive CR-11 monster. The Venom Crawlers themselves at full size are large creatures, but there's also small versions, Venom Crawler hatchlings, that still are kind of terrifying because- They can hurt. Yes. They can hurt. They they, surprisingly can hurt. They are baby spiders that are the size of an extra large pizza. Uh And I can't remember if it was two or three of them start making their way down through the webs because me running this mod- these modules and kind of combining them at the same location. It's like, okay, what's the worst that could happen if some of these small spiders are approaching the party? How much poison damage do those spiders do? And also worth mentioning spiders. You is scaled for a party at a combined level three, not Uh combined level one. So the first spider (laughs) lands a hit against our artificer. Actually, I can't remember if it was the first hit, but it was the first failed save. There you go. Because as soon as that poison damage went through at full strength, it did nine hit points worth of damage, which was eight as HP, Bye. and our artificer drops. Yep. So that, the two kids one works. are free. Oh, good. But the artificer is down. Yep. After a medicine check to stabilize her and using some of the what they have at their disposal, they are able to realize, okay, we need to have Gorg carry the artificer out, along with Siv, who obviously is incredibly concerned that her longtime friend has fallen in battle and the party is going to retreat. They're not going to be able to handle the shrine in this first go with Gorg and Siv carrying Ada in their arms and Delilah and Noreen leading two of the, of the five children. There's still three more that are believed to be missing. The party departs from the dungeon and the children are brought to their parents. They're concerned. The, the parents and are asking like, what's going on? Where were there? Obviously others there that are concerned that their children have not come out yet. Uh, the magistrate is interested in sending in backup, but he would much prefer to do that if they knew everything that was going that was down there. And the fact that one of the adventures that just went down has come up <laughs> on her back is not helpful. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so they are not immediately sending in backup. But one of the watchers in the crowd at this point is Thestro, that old mage uh, from the tavern. And, and he offers help. He, he knows of a contact who might be able to get Ada back on her feet again, uh, as well as perhaps some backup for the party when they go back down into the shrine. And he is concerned about the children because they don't remember why they went down there. And Freaky. yeah, they, they, they've come back up. They don't know why they went down there. They don't know where their friends are. The two of them were in the one chamber, but much of the rest of the shrine remains unexplored as the party exits the dungeon. Thestro watches uh, the children interacting with their parents and is talking to the party, but he looks right at Gorg as he says what ended up being the last line of our session. Well, I know the victim of a memory charm when I see one. Mm. And I cannot replicate the expression on Larissa's face when she heard that. (laughs) That was the (laughs) note that we ended Welcome to Murktown on. Yeah. All right. Session one in in the books. Yes, indeed. Lots going on there. Yeah, as well as episode one, because we'll come back to where this adventure picks up in a future campaign diary. Again, I have been keeping close count of my own campaign. I don't recall off the top of my head how many Strahd sessions we've run at this point. I have no idea. (laughs) See, this is one one of the biggest differences between you and me. I know what's happened, and I can keep a pretty good accounting of what's going to happen and where we're at currently. Mm-hmm. I have no idea how many sessions we've actually played. <laughs> That's just not one of the things that I've kept track of in the way that I keep notes. It's not this happened session one, this happened session two. 
uh, it's much more fluid in my brain and I keep notes on like the big things. So yeah. it'll be kind of interesting as we go forward talking about our campaigns. I think the conversation is going to be very different when we talk about Strad versus about, and we talk about uh, adventurers assemble. Mm. That's just one of the ways, you know, it's just like playing, playing D and D. You're never going to have the same character at the same table, regardless of whether or not they're the same class. I've played umpteen trillion paladins. Every single one of them has been different. I keep playing paladins. Don't know why. I've never played a bard up until now. Says the guy with, eight years of college music <laughs> never played a bard it's so weird but yeah i don't i don't keep the same kind of notes so it'll be a it'll be a very interesting conversation yeah it's getting into I, like i know what happened and i we can talk about it and that'll be great mm-hmm. but it'll be it'll be different it'll be good so you'll hear a future episode of our storytelling breakdown campaign diaries referencing my adventurers assemble campaign referencing the curse, curse of Strahd, Strahd. Cam- campaign that steven is running uh, there will be other campaigns, and we will try to make sure that all of this on, on your side of things is very obvious, and you can see what episodes you would want to take in and in what order, and we'll kind of do a brief, when we last saw our heroes at the start of each of these episodes, we'll pick up the adventure from there, but yeah. this was a tremendous amount of fun. Thanks for coming over, Stephen, and making this happen. Oh, of course. I'm looking forward to the next one. Thank you for listening. Please leave a review, give a rating, subscribe, and share with your friends from wherever you get your podcasts, especially if they play D&D. It all helps Storytelling Breakdown reach more people and grow our community. Check out the SB blog and past episodes at StorytellingBreakdown.com. And you can find us on Facebook and Instagram and reach out to our team at info at Storytelling-Breakdown.com. Our theme music is by Kurt Remke. Our logo is by Daniel Church. With campaign diary logos provided by Michael Ganser and Jeremy Stroop. Our podcast is hosted wherever you get your podcasts by John Dawkins and Wayne Shout Productions. Everyone has a story. These are some of our favorites. And this has been a Storytelling Breakdown Campaign Diary. SP Wayne Shout Productions. Wayne Shout. <laughs> <laughs>